Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. So, right off the bat, we wanted to start with a content warning for this week's episode because it deals with the concept of trauma and suicide pretty heavily. And we wanted to make sure that anyone affected by those issues has resources right off the bat. There will be more resources listed in the show notes, but right now, specifically in America and New Zealand, trauma and suicide are prevalent issues, so we'll be sharing resources for those. For the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And if you are living in New Zealand, we recommend www.lifeline.org.nz and to reach them by phone you can call 0800-LIFELINE that's 0800-543-354 or you can text HELP to 4357. Um, And as you mentioned we'll have some other countries listed in our show notes. So We do also have some awesome Patreon supporters to thank in this episode, so we would like to say a huge thank you shout out to Alice Sherman, Matthew Foxley, Shelley Butler, and Dr. Nairi Bakalian, who was our expert uh, two episodes ago. So it's awesome to get support from the people we interview as well as the people we talk to on Twitter. Thank you so much, you guys. And last but not least, we wanted to make sure that anyone who doesn't follow us on Twitter knows about our free button giveaway. So we are soliciting uh, your responses for our mailbag episode. You can give us anything we missed, anything you agree or disagree with, all of that good stuff about the podcast via email at warehouse13pod at gmail.com. That's warehouse13pod. Or... We also are looking for your stories of how Warehouse 13 changed or impacted your life. So this offer is good for anyone, anywhere. If we do end up choosing to feature your email on air, that pin is all yours. So don't miss out. We have until about April 14th to hear from you. Can't wait. Your summary for the week is... Pete and Micah head to Florida to investigate a spike in suicides at a prison. Claudia gets in over her head while doing inventory in the warehouse, and Micah confronts her guilt about Sam's death. This week's episode was written by Tamara Beecher, or Betcher, but I'm pretty sure Beecher is more common. She has a pretty long IMDb credit list. She worked for a pretty long time in various writer-adjacent positions in writer's room. Her first credit of that nature is as the script coordinator on season seven of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She went on to do script coordinator work for Wonderfalls, The Deerings, Eyes, The Inside, Vanished, which didn't last long, uh, The Book of Daniel, Standoff, Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles, Crash, and then she moved on to story editor credits on The Good Guys and Covert Affairs. From there, she moved on to do writer's credits, and interspersed with that, she had some writer's credits, which this is her only writing credit on Warehouse 13. From here, she went on to The Good Guys, then Covert Affairs. Then she worked on, as a writer, 
a lot of Marvel Universe shows. So, Iron Fist, The Runaways, Daredevil, and is now working on Doom Patrol, which is a DC-based TV series. So, she jumped ship, but we wish her well. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you, Tamara. And thank you for writing this episode. So I believe that was all of the stuff before we jump in, right? Yes. I do want to start with the previously ons because sometimes they can tell us some important information about what's happening. And these do. First of all, we get a flashback to Trisha Helfer. We love you, Trisha Helfer. Yeah. Talking a little bit about what happened in Denver with Micah. So sad, sad topic, but great spotlight. (laughs) And then we get flashbacks to some important things that are going to be happening, which is the fact that Pete has vibes and that they are related to how his father died, and then more information about Micah and Denver. And so once we get the previously on, we open in a strangely lit place focusing on a man we don't know. There are people dancing, and this, I described him as a guy with bad hair, is looking around like a club maybe, maybe looking for someone, he looks confused, and again, the lighting is strange, we're not quite sure what's happening. Then, a young woman approaches him, and she offers him a drink, or shots, something like that. He says he doesn't drink, and that's where all of a sudden we realize that this is definitely something weird. She starts accusing him of killing her and saying you've drank enough for a lifetime because you killed me and we kind of see some images of an accident. And we learn that she was 17 years old when this accident occurred and it was her prom night. Yeah, he insists that it was an accident but she's clearly upset and he's obviously upset as well. And that's when we start flashing between this strangely lit kind of hallucination and reality. And in the more realistically lit, kind of dark, bluish-toned place, there is someone telling him, and that's where we learn his name is Lee. They're saying, Lee, talk to me, you know, kind of trying to bring him back into reality. And Lee is not doing well in responding to that. He's just trying to get away from the young woman who is tormenting him. And we see him sort of slip and fall, and there's a great intercutting between those two worlds and then this pushes us into the real world where he's he's in the cell block of a prison yes thank you and he falls from a balcony and then that's when it becomes very obvious on the what's the word for the shot (laughs) the wider shot that they are in a big cell block there's a lot of prisoners and of course in any prison those environments are very volatile and a guy falling off the balcony is going to cause a great ruckus and so it's like he falls people get upset and then we cut i noted two things first i noticed that this was the kind of show that i would have been confused if i turned on the tv and expected warehouse 13 and saw that film quality because it seems like the kind of film quality that you get from a rerun of a show in the 90s. It felt sort of grainy, not as high definition, not real. Um, And then I noticed that the last thing that we see before we cut to a different scene is all of the other prisoners, you know, screaming and shouting about what's happening, and then one prisoner in shadow walking to the front of the cell and watching very calmly. 
Yes, thank you. That takes us to Lena's B&B, and Micah is sitting alone in the dining room, staring at an envelope, and a closer view shows us that she's looking at an unopened report of the Denver shooting, which is where Sam died, and Pete enters very jarringly. Like, not not on purpose, he's just being himself, but it's such a quiet moment, and Micah is so intensely focused on the report in her hands that she doesn't expect him, and she jumps when he enters, carrying a soap on a rope, <laughs> which she definitely points out. Do you know what soap on a rope is? Because I have never heard that in my life. It's soap on a rope that makes it harder to fall out of your hands when you're in the shower. <laughs> it's so weird. I've never seen this. I've definitely, like, I never used it, but it's definitely something I've, like, seen in other media. My main questions are, Pete, why? You are a coordinated man. What? Why? Well, okay. I know why. Because he likes to play with things. He's probably spinning it around on his finger in the shower. <laughs> but anyway, um, why did you bring it into the dining room, Pete? That's disgusting. But I know why. So he, I think, when he comes in to inform Micah about the mission, he goes, you're going to jail. And I think this is his cowboy voice. And he's swinging the only rope in his possession, which happens to be soap, <laughs> to get like a cowboy moment going. It's not a it's not a very good cowboy impression. It it didn't come off unfunny for him. It just didn't land. Yes, it didn't land for Micah because of her headspace. Yeah, but she she knows that it's funny and like she smiles and plays along. She just can't fully get herself out of the moment she was in and into this moment fast enough. And then they have like a really like intimate, not like romantically intimate or anything like that, but just like you have to be very close with a person <laughs> to have the exchange that they have for the rest of that moment. So she makes fun of his soap on a rope and he says, oh, yeah, well, you need moisturizer because your nose is dry. So he probably doesn't really realize she's been crying because that's what happens when you cry is that area gets dry. But she responds to that by making fun of his body hair <laughs> that grows out of, like, weird places like shoulders and his ear and his nose. And she plucks a hair out of his ear. Well, the funny thing was I thought she was joking, but then when he goes... Ow, like we know she's not joking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like you just have to be very close with someone to do that, which I thought was gross but sweet. Like that was the most sibling I think we've ever seen. Well, that. reminding us of last week when Alice was grossed out by Pete shining the the comms with spit, like Pete and Micah would never have that. They're pretty close at this point. Exactly. So then that takes us to the warehouse where Claudia is doing inventory. And a light above her in her section is flickering. And she goes, ugh, this place is falling apart. But then quickly gets distracted by Venus de Milo's arm. Yes! To which she says, rad. And Claudia, I agree wholeheartedly. That is rad. <laughs> so the Venus de Milo is a famous Greek sculpture, which is missing its arms. Is there a specific reason why it's exciting to you, Jillian? What I have always learned about the Venus de Milo's arms is that they are a source of extreme fascination in the artistic community because they broke off in such a way that nobody can possibly recreate what their position is. 
there are so many ways you can hold your arms and the way your arms are in sculptures, especially at various points in history, can tell you a lot about what that sculpture means. But because they're not there and because the joints are broken off in such a weird way, nobody can really ever know exactly what this sculpture was intended to do or say or mean. And so it's this huge artistic mystery. And of course that mystery is solved in the warehouse. Like she's like one of the few people in all of human history who has that information and I love it. And the other um, artifacts that we see include Tycho Brahe's prosthetic nose, which is very fascinating. So that is a 16th century Danish astronomer and he got into a duel in which the bridge of his nose was like, thwacked and so he had to wear a prosthetic nose which I think people at the time made a lot of jokes that it was made of silver or gold and in images obviously there wasn't photography but in images he looks pretty gruesome because he's got like a scar on his face and then this fake silver or, or gold nose but uh they did in the late 2000s dig up his body and the nose was found to be made of brass so, fun fact, I believe that happened in 2011 after this episode would have aired. Fact check alert, it was 2010. That's awesome! <laughs> um, and then Claudia is really having fun exploring this and doing the inventory stuff, but the flickering light is just getting to her, and she goes, I cannot work under these conditions, <laughs> and storms into Artie's office. And before we get to the discussion with Artie, I just want to comment on her wardrobe, because she has a really cool combo of, like, sort of like a racerback tank with a scoop neck tee and I definitely whether it was based on her or not I can't remember but I definitely used to wear almost that same thing so it was either really fashionable or I was just more obsessed with her than I remember. When you said in a previous episode that you spent a lot of time in college (laughs) trying to like look like this character what I have to say about that is this episode specifically but also that outfit specifically, I was like, oh, so that's what she meant. Yes, I had that exact outfit for sure, like down to the chucks and everything, yeah. Yes, and I saw that and I was like, oh, that's my Miranda. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, she she goes into Artie's office. And she says, what you doing? And he goes, rebuilding a carburetor, which reminds me of one of my favorite buckets. Yes, playing soccer. (laughs) Yes! So, for anyone playing the home game, whether you drink alcohol or water to be hydrated, time to take a shot, because we made a Buffy reference. (laughs) Um, But one of the best lines that I remember in Buffy is just a small moment between Dawn, who has been there the whole time. I don't know what you're talking about. She's real. She walks into Buffy's room and goes, what you doing? And Buffy flips a page on her magazine and goes, playing soccer. Yes, and so this is just as funny and sort of absurdist as that. He is clearly playing the piano, um, and then he explains that he's working on a song for his father. But the funny thing is, she goes, how old is your father? And he like just gives her a very intense glare, and it's like, I mean, that's good for you. <laughs> yeah, so... I will say, without dwelling on it too long, it's very interesting to learn that Artie plays the piano. And it comes up again, like in a major way. Um, And then she asks for keys to the cherry picker, which, do I need to explain what that is for people, or do you think people know what that is? I know what it is, and I never go outside. 
<laughs> do people know what it, I mean? It's like a it's like a, a mechanical machine for reaching high things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, she asks for keys to the cherry picker, and he goes, "You can't have them. Why do you want them?" And she says, "I want to change a light bulb. You'll just have me change it later. I might as well do it now." And he's sort of in a different headspace, and it's like, no, these light bulbs don't burn out. They're Shelby bulbs. They've been there for 108 years. And he starts explaining and, like, being very open. And we're like, wow, just so many straight answers right out of him. And then he just stops and goes, I don't have to explain anything to you. I'll check it later. (laughs) It's like, ah, yeah. There's the Artie we know. So she asks for the ability to change this light bulb and he's like no go away and then she stomps her foot really petulantly like a like a small child small child yeah it's funny it was just so pure and then she just glares at him and leaves and then that takes us i mean we've very quickly gotten to the prison plot line with um not even a briefing but just pete and micah are going there we cut to riverton penitentiary in florida my note on this was that it's definitely a prison and it's definitely creepy. Yes, which is the first thing Micah says about it. She goes, I know you've got the market cornered on vibes, but uh, this place feels creepy. And it especially feels creepy because a tropical storm is on the way. Which we learn from the new warden, Corinne Huggins. Yes. She explains that the reason they're there, which Pete had alluded to earlier, is that there have been four suicides in the past month. The most recent one was by a person who had no perceived risks of suicide, and all four of the people who had experienced this were model inmates, so people that it just didn't make sense that this had happened. Yeah, the person who we saw in the beginning, we learned that he had just earned parole and was going home to his wife and family, So, great support system built in, still married. Uh, So, it seems like he has a good, strong family and a good support system. And then, we also learn that the previous suicide before all of these ones in the last month was more than two years ago. Yes. So, all of a sudden, there were four in the past month, but there hadn't been for a long time. Pete and Micah are walking with Corinne on the way to her new office because she just took over as warden very recently. Pete is asking her about if there is anything new brought in, any new prisoners, any new objects. And she says, no, there hasn't been much time for any of that. It's a maximum security prison. No woman's touch. Well, and this is a joke because Micah had mentioned how creepy the prison was and Pete was like, it needs a woman's touch. But obviously that's not the case because we learned in the sort of walk over to the warden's office that there's no new possible artifacts or people except the warden, Corinne Huggins herself. And so Pete makes a little comment like, she must be keeping a little, you know, paperweight that's actually a demonic whatever, whatever. A demonic tchotchke. He did say tchotchke. Demonic (laughs) tchotchke. And then, oh wait, she has the emptiest office. Just definitely... Definitely going to be easy to go through her tchotchkes because there's basically none. The most standout features of her walls are the wider spaces where things have been removed. Like, it's amazing. 
It's funny to me because her desk is like at a diagonal angle in the middle of the office space. Just like magnifying how empty it is. Like you look at that. Yes. The angle of the furniture and the angle of the shot and it's comical. It's really good. And while Pete is saying, wow, I take back the uh, woman's touch comment. Micah catches a glimpse of Sam walking by. Which I have to state for the record right now is fascinating to me. Because as far as I know, she never got answers about Houdini's wallet. She didn't know that was a thing to ask about. Because it was so early on. In the text of the show, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so as far as we know at this point, she just had an audio hallucination that one time. Right. And now she's having a visual hallucination, which has got to be terrifying for her. Well, it's an audio-visual hallucination because she hears his voice saying, you killed me, Bunny. And so yeah. I think this is especially difficult, uh, and you might be able to speak more eloquently on it, but she has been very immediately recently dealing with like revisiting this trauma of losing in Sam. And... It is, to my knowledge, possible when you're dealing with a trauma to relive or, you know, see things, especially a person who you've lost. So she might actually think this is psychological and not an artifact at all at this point. I I certainly believe that she thinks it's psychological at this point. Um, and I think that makes her very self-conscious and very scared. Um, I don't have experience personally with hallucinations, but I know that they are a common response to trauma. Yeah. So I think that plays into the fact of, like, why she wouldn't tell someone. Because now it's an escalation in something that she already thought was quote-unquote wrong with her. There's nothing wrong with you if you have, you know, a disorder of any kind. Just seek help and do what you need to do to feel best. But... Yeah, it's really alarming, and we get some important information as she's experiencing that. Corinne tells Pete that all of her predecessor's things are stored in a closet until his estate is out of probate, and that closet is on the premises right outside her office. Yes, so she tells Pete this information and then hands him a box of the personal effects of the previous warden. And one of the items that the previous warden had was what appears to be a manuscript written by a reverend named Reverend Hill. Um, We see on the cover of the manuscript there is a snake eating its own tail called an Ouroboros, which of course Micah knows the word for. So they go to see him and they find him preaching to a bunch of inmates and that's when Pete reveals that that's what he's in for when Micah asks. And Pete hates him. That's such good acting on Eddie McClintock's part. Because honestly, from what he's read in this man's file, and what John Hill, his full name is Reverend John Hill, from what John Hill is saying to the inmates around him, it it couldn't be more far off from Pete's own philosophy. He's telling the other inmates that remorse has no place in your life and you can be more free in prison than the men who hold the keys and the only salvation is internal which Pete finds awful you do this terrible thing like killing your wife and then you absolve yourself of any remorse it it's 
the most objectionable thing he can imagine and you can see it all over his face absolutely and i think this would be a good time to do our new segment again called eureka moments that's because the character john reverend john hill is played by joe morton who many of us would be familiar with from sci-fi's eureka he does have a very long and diverse career which goes all the way back to the 1970s so you've definitely seen him in something even if you're not a, a eureka watcher um he was a guest in an episode of the x-files he played a recurring role as Dr. Stephen Hamilton in Smallville. He also played a recurring role in Law and Order. More recently, he played Daniel Golden in The Good Wife and Rowan Pope in Scandal. But for our Eureka moment, you know him as Henry Deacon, who is a jack-of-all-trades mechanic that's very important to the town of Eureka and to the main character, um, Jack Carter, who is kind of dealing with the shenanigans of this genius town. And he is an all-around absolute genius, even though he is not, you know, working at the big corporation or doing some of the more traditionally, like, renowned scientific careers. He is an amazingly intelligent person, um, you know, doesn't have much to do with this episode, but we definitely know and love Joe Morton, and it's interesting to see him in this role, especially because of the, like, dynamic arc as we follow this character through to the end of the episode. I recognized him first from The Good Wife, and yeah, like, he has such a huge emotional range. He can be so lovely or so hateful yes and so he's great we're thrilled to have him not as his character from eureka but as an actor who is on that show in this episode and that takes us out and then we come back in act two we are back in the stacks at the warehouse and claudia is standing in front of volta's lab coat which the display helpfully reads out temporarily increases biomagnetic attraction to which claudia responds what every fashionable girl is wearing this fall and <laughs> she looks so good when she puts it on <laughs> yes it's a fashion like, joke but it's very steampunk it's so steampunk and then we get a cool effect which is something we've never seen with any artifact before is a small rainbow rolls over her which is pretty cool so a quick little moment here besides how cool she looks. So Alessandro Volta was an Italian physicist and chemist who pioneered work in electricity and power. And most people credit him as the inventor of the electric battery. So that's probably what we know him for. At first watch, this may seem like a sort of B plot that's not super, super related to the A plot at the prison but it's actually totally tied in both like with the motifs of electricity and magnetism and the themes of these kind of like major electric events and, and discoveries in that field. So Volta's discoveries are linked to Luigi Galvani, who we've talked about in episode 103 with magnetism. Um, Galvani was the guy who coined the term animal electricity so related to those ideas that we discussed with our expert Cameron Sanzo. 
he was the one that did the experiment with putting the electric connectors on the frog's legs, which, literary moment, was what inspired Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. So we've got so much fun history of science and so much just nerd delight to revel in. And then it was actually because Volta had a disagreement with Galvani about specifics of electricity that he produced his electric battery to show his take on this phenomenon. So, so much cool stuff is happening. And this isn't even the, the major artifact. There's just lots of awesome artifacts happening. So she puts on the lab coat, as we said, and touches the support beam and like her hand clamps to it. And it's very clear that she can just easily climb up no problem so she starts climbing and she reaches the top of the area where she needs to be to unscrew the light bulb and she goes i can totally see my house from here because honestly that must be a really amazing view of the warehouse yeah remembering the pilot where you see how massive the space of the warehouse is she does have a good view and there's also a little pun because like the warehouse is her house Yes! It's adorable! I was just thinking that. It's so cute. She giggles a bit, and then some small metal objects start flying at her, like paper clips, and she is very slightly alarmed, but, like, she's like, okay, well, whatever, that's something that happened. And she tightens the bulb, it goes out, and then she just has this look that I relate to so hard. She goes, well, now we know they last 108 years, <laughs> which is such a great response. I love it too, and that's the end of Claudia's quick little climb before we jump back to the prison. So Pete and Micah are walking and talking. And Pete has a great joke that I don't want to get lost. (laughs) So they're walking away from John's cell, and Pete says, was that guy born with crazy eyes or did he have corrective surgery? (laughs) Oh, I didn't even hear that. That's so funny. Yes, and he stops in his tracks. And says, do you see that guy? When Micah asks what's wrong. And Pete immediately tells her that he sees his dad. And we get a very creepy shot of a fireman in full gear in black and white. Yes. Who then disappears. And then we go to a Farnsworth call where Pete tells Artie immediately. And it's very true to how Pete is. He goes, this is unusual. I will tell Artie. And that's when Micah reveals that... She saw Sam, and Pete is very concerned and is like, well, why didn't you tell me? Not in an accusatory way, just you should be able to tell me things. And then Artie and Micah have a great exchange. Artie goes, you're both hallucinating? When were you going to mention this to me? And Micah's like, we just did. They literally called him as soon as possible, so it's very funny. There's two things I want to point out. Okay, so after the Pete saying, that's my dad, we see an exterior shot of the storm moving in, which we are getting kind of visual mental clues that that's going to be important. But the thing that I want to point out for people who would be watching the show for the first time and are very attentive is that, well, Pete saw his dad and Micah saw her dead lover, Sam. Our connection as audience members is that these are dead loved ones and Seeing dead people, like, could certainly be an effect of an artifact, as well as something that I'm going to discuss later, 
which is less traumatizing and more history of science uh, connection, which is those ideas of kind of unseen magnetic forces being linked to seances and spiritualism and stuff that we've talked about before. So that's actually when they tell Artie they're both seeing these people and there's a storm moving in, Tropical Storm Inez, and Artie's like, oh no, like, God, not this. Like, you've got to tell me these things. The energy from the electricity of the storm is going to totally crank up these artifacts. It can make things just go haywire. So he's like, you have to call me, check in every hour, because he's definitely worried that this is exacerbating the problem. Yes. I think that Micah feels huge relief about this because it alleviates her fears that something is happening with her mental health. It's not directly, I mean, something is, she needs to work through her issues. Like still, just because she's not having hallucinations doesn't mean she doesn't have things she needs to address, but she is not having the symptom that she fears, which I think is really good for her. Plus it gives her an excuse to not focus on it right now and focus on work, which is what she really likes to do. Yes. Then we see Pete and Micah talking to the prison doctor. The The doctor is talking about Lee, the recent victim, saying that he quit drinking, that he was moving forward, but the doctor does say that guilt is very powerful, and it's clear that Lee was dealing with that guilt and troubled, plagued by the guilt, and that's when Pete and Micah say, okay, well, did he have any enemies? And the doctor says, <laughs> sorry, I got to interrupt. Doctor, doc- his name is Dr. Cooper, says his nemesis was Reverend Weirdo. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, because we do with um, Morton's skills, we get those crazy eyes. We get, I mean, we'll talk about his dialogue, but his dialogue is, to me, nonsense. Yeah. Um, it's just things that sound possibly meaningful, but don't have like, like really logical meaning. And it's, which is what Lee realized. And that's what the doctor is saying. Uh, he was saying that Lee was one of the first people who latched on to John and what he was talking about. And then as the prison suicides kept happening, Lee realized that, John was just an opportunist and wasn't really saying anything valuable. Yes. And so they go to the warden to say, we've got we to gotta go investigate Reverend John Hill some more. And the warden says, well, no, but I mean, yes, but he's harmless. He's actually even calmed the prison inmates a little bit. The guilt being almost contagious in that these people are experiencing a similar emotion in large large numbers and so that's what I wanted to point out because Miranda and I were texting a bit before this episode the two things that I think come up more in this series than anything else are affect theory which for those who remember from episode 103 that's a term that just refers to the way that emotions transfer from person to person and the other thing that comes up all the time is electricity and electromagnetism. And we have both of those on the forefront in this episode. So I think that's very interesting. Yes. And I think, and one of the the reasons I, as a scholar of the 19th century, am obsessed with this show and claim it as even more steampunky than it is on a visual level is 
that both of those concepts, affect and emotions, um, early psychology, early, uh, you know, just so much like sentimental literature, like the way that people, um, you know, Darwin wrote the expressions of the emotions of man and animals, like that's such a essentially Victorian obsession, as well as electricity and magnetism changing the world as we know it. Um, because when we get to Claudia's Morse code, we're going to talk again about the telegraph and like the spreading of electricity over the wires as something that's pivotal, not only to this episode, but to the show Warehouse 13. So it's such a rich text for us Victorian scholars. From there, we go to John's cell where Pete and Micah are talking to John about the necklace that he has, which has the Arabros on it, just like his manuscript. Can I just... Is it, and this is because I'm a classicist, do people say Ouroboros? Because I say Ouroboros. Oh, we're both wrong. You're a Boris. What? That is when I click play on the dictionary, it is saying you're a Boris. Okay. I don't even have it on my Merriam-Webster app, so. Yeah, it's there. I, apparently it's you're a Boris, which just sounds like you're naming someone Boris to me. <laughs> Pete and Micah are getting suspicious of the reverend oh, yes. when they see the Ouroboros or Euroboros. All pronunciations welcome. And Pete asks, where do you get that necklace? To which John Hill responds, you could say it's always been with me. Pete responds exactly how I would respond, which is, or you could say where you got it. <laughs> Huge red flag, both for just being a strange individual and for, like, Artifact City, you know? Yeah, like, you could say it's always been with me. No, you couldn't. You got it at a certain time. Just give an answer. <laughs> and he says the necklace is unimportant, but what it re represents is important. Transcending the cycle and walking the path of enlightenment. And then he says to feel remorse is to shame God. And what I wrote is, wow, that's an awful philosophy. Hmm. <laughs> He's, he's sort of babbling, but in a way that speaks to some of the prisoners, which I found honestly very alarming throughout the episode. Because if you are in prison for a violent crime, like killing your wife, you should feel bad about that. And it's one thing to give undue guilt to yourself, but it's another to not feel remorse. To be remorseful is to know that you've done something wrong and to change your behavior in accordance with that. To feel remorse is not to shame God if you believe in God. It's the way people learn and grow as individuals. And I worry, especially in a prison environment, that the people who would gravitate to a philosophy that eschews remorse are the people who are already prone to not feeling that bad in the first place and now feeling justified for not feeling that bad. And so this is why Pete and Micah are clearly growing increasingly more suspicious. And these ideas of the the only prison is our self-imposed prison of fear and regret, in the context that they first encounter that, it's just what Jill has described where, um, you know, I am a million percent in favor of reforming people and helping people no matter what crimes they've committed to learn and grow and change as opposed to just, you know, never never getting a chance to be a human. Um, but 
there's something about their suspicion that's very valid here. Well, especially Pete. And I'll get to what's happening with Micah in a second, but what's going on with Pete is very important because throughout season one and the rest of the series, Pete's alcoholism is a major character point for him. And making amends, knowing what you did wrong, admitting you have a problem, all of these things are extremely important to recovery from addiction. You have to hit your rock bottom before you seek help. And rock bottom's different for everyone. But it means getting to that place where you realize the thing you did or the things you did that were unacceptable and that need to be changed. Yes, and you take responsibility for your actions even if it was the result of an addiction or a substance or what have you. Like, you you have to come to terms with it to recover, to my best knowledge, as a person without that experience personally. Exactly. And so all of the things that make Pete the really open, emotional, like emotionally healthy, comfortable with emotions guy that we know him as is because he does feel remorse and because he has learned from his behavior. And we love Pete and he is, as Eddie McClintock said in our interview, the exact opposite of the idea of toxic masculinity. He's everything a cishet white man should be to the people around him. And the philosophy that John Hill is espousing is in direct opposition to what makes him that way. Yes. So let's pick up from there to um, Micah, who follows Sam, or the image of Sam, around a corridor... She knows he isn't real or, you know, she's mentioned this to Artie. She knows Pete's having it too, but she's definitely spooked by seeing him. And Pete has a similar look of being really freaked out on his face, but it's clear that Pete has a little more of a control on his guilt and his trauma, which totally makes sense because Micah's was so recent and Pete's was as a child. And similarly, you know, yes, it happened 30 years ago for Pete, but also Pete can feel less guilt, I think, comparatively, because as a child, his dad wouldn't have stopped. He wouldn't have been able to make a change in the way that Micah feels she could have or should have been able to, as a, you know, trained professional in her prime to save her her person Sam. So we're going to get to that more. And I think the other thing that is making this so raw and so much of an open wound for Micah is that she knows she's been waiting for this report. Like, I can't imagine what hell that's been for her because not only did she lose this person who she loves so much, but you and I think about our behavior a lot. And I think a lot of people have those moments when they're laying in bed at night and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that one thing when I was 17, you know? Yes. It's normal for you to think about it. But emotion and guilt comes in waves. It's not something that goes away all at once. It's something you need to remind yourself of and be kind to yourself continuously about. And anytime that she thinks she can put away her emotions about Sam, at least for a little bit, and forgive herself again, she can go, okay, well now I'm... I've reconciled for now with the fact that this happened with Sam. I know that it's not my fault. Then whenever she wants to pivot back to work and focus there, something in the back of her mind is also going to be saying, 
oh gosh, but what if other people don't see this the way I just was able to reason it? What if technically there was something wrong? There's been no escape, so there's been no opportunity for her to really begin healing because there's always been this threat of another trauma incoming by an actual factual report coming at her that might blame her for the worst moment of her life. Yeah, and having to wait a long time for it is bad for any person, especially a person who is mentally and psychologically dealing with that stressor. Yes, and so that I think is really powerful and takes us to our commercial break. Yes, and then when we come back, we're at the warehouse, and Claudia can't move. She's like, oh, I can't move. This is not good. Oh, okay, I'll take off the coat, but she definitely can't. Like, she is super magnetic, and then she makes a joke where she's like, I am so going to be grounded And that's just a good, like, science nerd slash pun. It's just really funny. Yes. And then she screams for Artie, which is heartbreaking, but so sweet. Yeah. She's like, I gotta call my dad. (laughs) Yeah. When she calls for Artie, she's like, dad. Like, that's how it feels. It feels exactly like that. It feels like you begrudgingly need to ask your dad for help on something you don't want his help on, which is exactly what Claudia is experiencing. And what we can visually see is that she's definitely getting more and more magnetic. Um, there's a bike that flies up to to her. There's big objects flying up to her. So this is like, it's funny and it doesn't seem like a huge crisis. But it's getting a little more dangerous, and I think she knows that she can't go on this way. Yes. And then we cut back to the prison, and we're in the warden's office. And there, Pete and Micah are getting records from the warden, who doesn't know what they're looking for. But we get some info from her and from the records that she gives them which is that the prison used to be known as the Snake Pit and dozens of inmates went insane. In 1979, there was a huge hurricane, and during that hurricane, there were uncontrolled riots, which led to the prison being closed down for a year. And when it was reopened, it was under a new warden named Warden Matthews, who was Corinne's direct predecessor. And he instituted daily prayers and turned the place around. And I know that we might have an expert here that can tell us some stuff about that, Miranda. Yes, so this is a great place to introduce our artifact expert for the day. Lydia Palo Hobbs, who recently defended her dissertation at the City University of New York, is an activist and scholar whose research tracks the relationship between the formation and contestation of the Louisiana carceral state from the 1970s to the present. She has organized in various social and economic justice movements, which include prison reform slash abolition and strengthening solidarity economies. She is a co-founder with AORTA, the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance. And so there were a lot of options with this particular episode, but I read something on the wiki, uh, the fan wiki page for Warehouse 13, which was that this character of Warden Matthews may have been and seems possibly inspired by uh, a historical prison warden named Burl Kane. And this is not a one-to-one correlation, and I don't have it from the mouth of the writers, but I do think whether or not it's literal, the inspiration of having a religious 
sort of Christian um, warden come in and use that to reform a southern prison is definitely what's happening here. So I will note that this episode takes place in Florida, which is like a version of the South, the American South. And the historical person, Burl Kane, was a warden in Louisiana, which is a very different southern place. But there's a lot to be learned here. So let's get our first clip of who Burl Kane is. So Burl Kane was the warden at Angola, um, which, you know, that's its nickname, its official name. It's the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Um, he was the warden in Angola between 1995 until very recently, I believe within 2016, that he left the warden, warden um, position in Angola. So he was a warden before that at Dixon. So Dixon was the second men's prison built in Louisiana. It was built in 1976. Angola is the state's longest standing um, prison. It is most famous because it was originally um, a series of different um, plantations. Um, during chattel slavery. It was then turned into a site of convict leasing, um, uh, kind of, you know, starting in the, about the 1860s until it was sold to the state in 1901 to be the um, second state prison. The original state prison was in um, Baton Rouge, but then it was moved to the land that we call Angola, although people who were enslaved there were not actually from Angola. That's just planter imagination. So Brocaine, you know, is was a lifelong warden. He's retired now. He's most famous for, um, for well, there's two ways to think about Kane. One is his image of himself, which he's done an incredible job of promoting over the years. So Brocaine would tell you that he, you know, cleaned up Angola and that he did it through a series of rehabilitation-focused reforms that really... Um, were kind of based in some Christian ethics and a pretty deep um, Christianizing of Angola's uh, various educational and vocational training. What folks who are incarcerated in Angola will tell you is that Burl Kane was famous for shutting down many of the kind of avenues that they had had of doing collective organizing before his tenure. Um, so Angola was very notable beforehand because it had a free press um, the Angolite, which was a prisoner news magazine that still exists, but for 20 years ran, un ran, ran uncensored. Once Kane came in, that was no longer the case. Um, once Kane came in, there had been a lot of kind of uh, connections between incarcerated people in Angola and those on the outside world that allowed for different types of activism to emerge. He made those no longer exist. Um, versus in the 80s, there was a lot of symposiums around criminal justice and potentials for reforms that incarcerated people were brainstorming up to try and really shift the rise of tough on crime politics. But King made a lot of those things go away and actually oversaw the greatest expansion of solitary confinement in Louisiana's history. So, you know, there become over a thousand beds dedicated to solitary um, and Angola, which I probably should have said this earlier, but Angola, for folks who don't know, is the largest maximum security prison in the nation in terms of population. Um, it has now 6,000 people incarcerated there, spread over about um, 18,000 acres, which for folks who that's hard to imagine, 18,000 acres is just slightly larger than the island of Manhattan. So it's a really large swath of land. Wow, yeah. And, yeah, and so... Kane oversaw all of that and liked to talk about it and wrote a book about himself and invited journalists to write stories about him and all sorts of different things uh, during those years that he was warden. So 
it's definitely important that Matthew's religious um, inspiration was a big part of the prison becoming a, a slightly more controlled environment. Um, and then we learned something which did not come up in this sense in my interview, but in a different sense where we see some photos of this man, Warden Matthews, getting rid of a giant Euroboros symbol. And the current warden, um, Corinne, says, oh, he got rid of anything pagan. And that's kind of wild because it has certain implications that are linked with kind of Christianity viewing any possible alternative non-Judeo-Christian religions as pagan, um, even though me and Jillian now might use that word in a different way in kind of 21st century culture. So the next clip I want to include is not about paganism, but about the two different ways that religion impacts a prison system. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I have a good friend and colleague, Laura McTie, who writes really explicitly about religion in prison. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, we can think of it as there's a long history going back to the early 20th century kind of prison reform movement, right? Like progressive era reform that also really centered Christianity and centered kind of Christian morality as at the center of kind of people's rehabilitation. Um, and, you know, these are the, you know, those were tended to be, but not always were white women mm -hmm. um, who really were invested, you know, in the idea, right, of repentance and the ability of people to um, both kind of on one side repentance for people who were incarcerated, but on the other side, kind of this idea of, you know, Christian charity for them to go into the prisons and do you know, reading groups or what have you. So that there's a long history there that I think is really notable and that the idea of rehabilitation and the prison has always kind of been viewed through a Christian lens in particular in the U.S. So that's one side of it. Another way to think about it, though, is starting in the 1950s, Muslim prisoners, particularly Nation of Islam prisoners, um, started filing a series of lawsuits um, around their right to practice Islam inside. So there's an, and actually began to win many, many, many cases. If that's the context, we can think of Malcolm X getting politicized mm -hmm. under um, while he was incarcerated. And so there's also this kind of counter, counter to the Christian hegemonic kind of religiosity of the prison. Like, and, and I think we can think about that as like the broad-based kind of top-down Christianity um, of, you know, more kind of Muslim, Nation of Islam, so, you know, black nationalists organizing through a religious kind of framework, which actually also opened up the avenue for most of the prison reforms that we see in the 1960s and 1970s have those roots in that um, tradition of organizing and lawsuits. Um, so I think that's interesting to think about, because I think when we think about black prisoner organizing during, you know, the civil rights movement and the black liberation movement, we don't often think of it as originating through an explicitly religious register. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other way to kind of think about it for me too, is that there has also been, of course, a series of different types of, you know, more kind of left-wing Christian um, activism around the prison. And so again, if we're going back to Angola and Louisiana, 
um, you know, we, you know, Dead Man Walking, right, is about a death row inmate and Angola. And so thinking about kind of different Catholic responses and organizing against the death penalty um, as a kind of a different moment that I think has a different politic to it um, than kind of maybe the more evangelical Christianity that someone like Burl Cain really brought into the prison. And again, when I say brought in, I don't mean he was the first person, but really doubled down on it mm-hmm. in that way. So I want to say that first and foremost, right, there's some broad swaths that I think I can think through about, quote unquote, the South, mm-hmm. but because, right, um, incarceration operates on a real state by state basis, right? Yeah. I am much more familiar with specifically what happened in Louisiana, although I know some generalizations otherwise. So, right, so the U.S. really ramps up its incarceration rate from 1970 to the present day. Um, You know, it it balloons over 200 times in that time from about 200,000 people locked up across the U.S. to over 2 million people today, right? So the growth is very um, large and it goes pretty quickly specifically in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, One of the things to think about is that whereas the South was always a leader in per capita incarceration rates, um, it really wasn't that much different, for instance, in, say, the 40s or the 50s than it started to become in the 80s and 90s. And a lot of that is simply, I think, we can think through that in terms of the really speed up of tough on crime law. So a lot of people begin charting out this growth of mass incarceration. Um, a common kind of linchpin um, is the passage of the Safe Streets Crime Act by Nixon um, in the 1960s. So that's a really key beginning. It, it creates the Law Enforcement Administration Act, which is the first time there is significant federal funding that goes to states and other localities, so cities, to start funding prison expansion, jailing expansion, policing expansion, prosecutorial kind of power getting bulked up, all of these things start happening in that instance. So that happened nationwide, and that that was really tied in um, as a kind of repressive state force in response to kind of the rise of black and brown organizing in the 60s, like pretty directly um, as folks like Naomi Murakawa, Christian Parenti, in particular, have demonstrated to us in their scholarship. So in the case, so that happens everywhere, but what happens in the South is that the hardening of criminal legal lines are also accompanied by quicker moves when it comes to the early dispossessions of um, communities, particularly working class communities of color in urban cores um, along kind of the early days of neoliberalism. So we can think about neoliberalism as really kicking off in 1973. So that was really important to learn. From there, we go back to John Sell because Pete and Micah are convinced that his necklace is to blame. And they take his necklace and they put it in one of their goo vats that Miranda thinks looks like a coffee carafe. Oh, the carafe. Um, And they put it in the vat and there's no spark, but... They're so early on in the warehouse that they're not really clear on the fact that it should always spark a bit when you put it in. And I also wanted to say that it might be, when we see in the very first episode, the first the first thing we see already put into one of those vats or bags or whatever is Houdini's wallet. And he says, that's mm-hmm. a bad spark. 
So there might be bigger and smaller sparks, and Pete and Micah might have been on some off-screen storytelling missions where the sparks weren't as huge. So I think I can forgive them at this point for not noticing, especially when it coincided exactly with a lightning strike. Yes. Meanwhile, in Dr. Cooper's autopsy room, Um, The doctor is clearly feeling regret about Lee because his patient and a person he was obviously invested in helping uh, has died. And this is when Dr. Cooper starts having the hallucinations as well. And his hallucination is very scary that Lee kind of gets up off the autopsy table, comes back to life, and attacks him. And so... The doctor kind of understandably is grabbing his tools and fighting this hallucination. But in reality, when we cut to more of the real world and the aftermath of this, we see that this has caused the doctor to kill himself. Yes. And at first I was confused because there was just a body slumped over laying there. And then I was like, oh, of course, no coroners can get there right now. There's a storm. So at this point... The warden is really annoyed with Pete and Micah and demands to know what's going on. And Pete and Micah share a look. So Micah starts by saying, well, it could be anything. And before she can give away too much information, Pete goes, okay, look, sometimes freaky stuff causes other freaky stuff to happen. And I just wrote that Micah mentally face palms. (laughs) She does. It's so not helpful, Pete. It's... His intensity is too much. His words aren't clear enough. Micah is a very similar personality type to this warden where she just wants clear answers. She doesn't want to play games. So she knows immediately how she would respond to Pete if he did that. And she's like, this is not going to work. And it immediately backfires. Corinne tells them that as soon as the storm is gone, she wants them out of her prison and that she'll be calling federal investigators about this. Yeah, which again, for a person who has to keep such a clean ship as a prison warden would. Especially a maximum security prison. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, Corinne storms out, and Micah tells Pete that medical examiners are mandated to actually record with their voices their findings, which I don't know if that's true or if it's just true in the state of Florida, but there it is. And so they go to look for their recorder, and Pete is slightly outside the autopsy room, and Micah is in the autopsy room, and one of them needs to search the body while the other searches other places. And Pete goes, well, I'm all the way over here, which is is exactly what I would say. I don't think either of them are particularly squeamish about dead bodies. I mean, Pete killed a man with his bare hands in 105, but I think that... If one person has the option of not touching the dead body, they're going to take it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so Micah's like, oh my god, I'll do it, it's fine. And Pete literally turns around and looks (laughs) down and finds the recorder immediately. But he watches Micah sort of bumble awkwardly with the doctor's body, which is so sweet, and I feel like it's something you and I would do. So she lifts up his arm and goes, sorry, I have to move your arm. And Pete gets a little bit of a chuckle out of that. And then he's like, hey, Micah, and holds up the, uh. It's just the right amount of time to not be cruel or a bad partner, but to still be like, 
Micah, you're being so nice to this poor, poor man who has died, you know. And I think it's very important, too. Like, I think it's very, it would be very easy for someone to say, this is really callous. This is a person who just died. A lot of people are dying. You need to take this seriously. But I also think that in order to do their jobs, they have to move forward. We've talked about this a bit before with Artie, too, as a law enforcement professional, the way he didn't feel as much guilt about, yeah, what happened to Claudia and Joshua at first because he had to do his job and move on because if you let that stuff eat you up, it will kill you, which is exactly what happened to Dr. Cooper. He felt too much guilt about what happened to Lee, which makes sense because of how close they were and how invested he was and how recent it was. But if you take all that on and put all of the, you know, stressors of the world on your shoulders, it will eat you alive. Yes, absolutely. And now that they've acquired the recorder, they turn it on and they hear Dr. Cooper doing his autopsy, talking just, you know, his own voice. But where we were kind of more aware of his hallucination, what they hear played back is static. Yeah, they hear static in between the shouts. They're, They're very clearly able to hear what Dr. Cooper is yelling, but instead of a voice on the other end, or instead of nothing, which is what you'd expect to hear, they hear very specific, very loud static. And this is interesting for, I would say, two reasons, but a million reasons. The first one is that static is a form of electricity, and that's a big theme, so that's kind of the actual answer. But the second thing is that You may remember the TV show Ghost Hunters from Mm -hmm. the Sci-Fi Network. And in fact, Allison Scaliotti guest uh, hosts an episode of Ghost Hunters International, which I, of course, know because I watched everything she was in. Well, I'm going to find that in the show notes for you guys. You may be familiar with those ghost hunting shows, which have a very Victorian valence to them, where they get these specific um, electronic readers and pick up on what sounds like static and various forms of energy that are related to electricity and magnetism and magnetic fields and static and stuff. So again, if it's your first time watching we have the possibility that there is a ghosty, scary thing happening, which to me makes the episode really interesting, especially, again, if you're just, if you don't remember it or you're just watching it, I think it's a really just fascinating concept how well the science and the fantasy work together. Yes. So then we have a Farnsworth call with Pete and Mike on one end and Artie on the other, and Micah either plays or describes the sound for Artie. I can't remember exactly. And he says, oh, well, it's 10,000 cycles per second, which means it could be anything natural. And then he confirms what he thinks and what he already knows by looking on his little steampunk computer and finds the exact frequency of static to which Micah is instantly able to go, yep, that's the one. (laughs) I didn't even catch that. That's very strange. Yes, but I mean, I believe it. I believe that. Well, warehouse technology, yeah. Yeah, and I believe that Micah would be able to remember that exact sound. And so Pete summarizes the whole thing by saying, so we're looking for some kind of mineral artifact that causes hallucinations. Yes, and they are having that conversation when Ari gets distracted because he hears some banging noises and it's awesome that this is what it is. 
is Claudia tapping out Morse code? She's doing SOS, which for the record, if you don't know Morse code, that's the only thing you really ever need to know. Learn it. It's dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. Because he hears that and immediately recognizes it and again gives us another very Victorian call out to essentially what's the connection between electricity and magnetism, which is kind of the two plot points we're dealing with with the electric storm and then the magnetic jacket. So on a really basic level, it was in the the 1820s, I believe, when Victorian scientists or I guess 19th century scientists used to think that electricity and magnetism were different things. But then a specific scientist observed that a when an electric current flowed along a cord, it produced a magnetic field. So there is a connection between those things. And that connection is ultimately, you know, we're going to use the electric telegraph to send messages across wires. And that's exactly where Morse code becomes necessary. I just love it. And I love, of course, that Claudia knows at least that level of Morse code. Yes. And he ends the call without really hanging up (laughs) because he's like, oh, wait. And he sort of looks away and... Mike and Peter are like, you know what, we'll deal with this, goodbye. And I just, and I was just like, I felt for Pete and Mike in that moment. It's like, okay, I guess I'll figure out this important thing on my own, bye. <laughs> yes, and then when we get back from commercial, Artie has found Claudia, and she's just going over, you know, man, did I learn my lesson. Wow, you were so right. Oh, what a hilarious story I have to tell you about how I did exactly what you told me not to. It's perfect. I just love it. So great. Artie says Volta couldn't control the magnetic field, which is why it's in the warehouse. Like, reminding Claudia, like, things are in the warehouse, not because they have, like, these kooky effects, but because they have bad effects, and we needed to go across state and national lines to collect them and put them here. So apparently every object that connects to the magnetic field of this jacket makes it stronger, and Volta was unable to control it. And as he says that, his glasses fly off it <laughs> towards Claudia, and he very futilely says, those better not be scratched. Which they definitely are. They flew a long ways. They're more than scratched. We see them later. Yes. So back at the prison, Pete tells Micah that, like, you can tell me things. Yes. I made some very specific notes about the dialogue in this scene. Pete is so good, and honestly, this scene, more than any scene we've seen so far in the entire series, and more than a lot that we'll see in the future too, this scene makes me love Pete. This is a scene that made me go, I need a Pete in my life. Because he says, are you okay? And Micah says, yeah. And instead of saying, no, you're not, which is something, like, I would say to you if I knew you were (laughs) upset. He does something else, which is so sweet. He goes, I just want you to know that you can tell me things. And then he doesn't fill the silence. Sometimes in order to get the best information, you have to let the silence become uncomfortable enough that the other person is forced to speak. You don't break the tension and make it easier for that person. And so Pete is a huge, jokey guy. He always knows how to diffuse tension. So it's very purposeful to me that he chooses not to because he wants her to just say what she needs to say, whether it's, I don't want to talk about it, 
I'm fine, or here's what it is. And so she thinks about it. She gets really emotional and says, I got the report about Denver. And he doesn't make a joke. He just says, what does it say? And she says, I didn't read it. And then he waits. He waits again. He isn't going to try and guess about what she needs to say. And so she says, I know I did everything by the book. I know that intellectually. And that's when he jumps in and goes, of course you did. You're you. Oh, such the perfect thing to say. I know. And she says, but what if I miss something? And what if it's my fault? And he says, the best possible thing. And he says, it's nobody's fault except for the piece of garbage who shot Sam that day. Which is so true. Mm-hmm. And to anyone who's dealing with feelings of survivor's guilt, which is, again, as we mentioned in the content warning in the beginning, a big issue in America and New Zealand right now, please know that the things that are happening are no one's fault except for the person who did those things. You did nothing wrong. And that's such a hard concept to allow yourself to believe. Yes. And then he says, Micah, you're a hero and so is Sam. And that sort of closes that out and he breaks the tension and he goes, that's a cool science project. So he finally, he's like, okay, I've I feel like I've done it. I'm not going to push it further. And earlier we learned what she was doing was she was <laughs> taking apart um, a walkie-talkie and describing how when she used to be in the Girl Scouts, they would use some sort of substance that's inside a lot of radios and walkie-talkies and stuff to create makeshift metal, metal detectors and look for gold because, of course, young Micah would do that. I believe it 100%. <laughs> She says they never found gold, but they did find a lot of useless minerals, which is great because they're actually looking for minerals right now. And that's when they they get it working, but it's just like static, static, static or, or whatever. It's, it's giving her positive results. And then the two of them piece together, oh, this is actually working because the whole structure, it was built on a, a quartz mine and therefore is what I think Pete describes as a giant tuning fork. Like, it's just quartz everywhere causing that specific effect. Yes, and Pete is so smart for figuring it out. It's really easy to say, this isn't the result I wanted, so it's not working because I was hoping it would do this one thing. But he's like, okay, assume it is working. What does this tell us? It tells us the minerals are everywhere. It's I really like his ability to commit to what's happening and analyze what's happening without expectations. Yeah. It's so strong. And before we move on, I want to insert another clip here because the prison that may be an inspiration for this was built on a southern plantation. Angola mirrors the broader Louisiana criminal legal system and that about 70% of the people incarcerated at Angola are black. Um, and about and that's a flip from the general demographics of the state of Louisiana. So in Louisiana, about 30% of the state is black and 70% is white. And then it's the flip for the prison system, which is not to say there aren't Vietnamese folks and inc- increasingly some Honduran folks in Louisiana, but by and large, that's the vast majority of the state. Um, and so, you know, Angola is an overwhelmingly black institution um, with a pretty stark racial divide um, in terms of the guard to prisoners. Um, there was more intense of racial segregation um, earlier on, so in the 70s, there was a intense uh, federal lawsuit filed by four black prisoners in Angola who, you know, charged the prison with 
the totality of inhumane conditions. Um, and one of the many things they named in their suit was the high rates of racial segregation in the dorms, um, in dining assignments, and also in terms of the work assignments. So that started to get broken down after the lawsuit. Um, and this was, again, when there was a much more progressive federal judiciary than we start to get in the 80s and 90s. Um, but during that time, you know, there was really these things like, for instance, being a law clerk, um, which was one of the best prison jobs, right, was only reserved for white prisoners, um, having access to, for instance, running the Angolite, the prisoner news magazine I was talking about before, being an editor was is still a job, right, also one of the best prison jobs. And again, and, and, and only for white for white folks. And one and I do want to note that when I say the best prison job rates, their people are still woefully underpaid. Um, but best often meant the most kind of access to some type of autonomy. Um, so having the ability to go into your Angolite office, having the ability to be in the law library, you know, having the ability to work as a clerk, kind of filing cards. Um, of different folks who are coming in versus the really difficult work of particularly doing things such as janitorial work, um, groundskeeping, um, working in the kitchen, sort of just much more difficult jobs. You know, people tend to think that, you know, most folks at Angola work in the fields. That really hasn't been the case as the farm underwent similar restructuring as Southern agriculture institutions as a whole. So there's not that many people that do that plantation labor, although mass media will make you think otherwise, um, but that there's still, you know, a real difference in doing what a lot of folks call the reproductive labor of the prison. And so what we can gain, I think, thematically from those connections are if we think of a quartz mine as a, first of all, like a working a blue collar place where people were working really hard and then eventually it got turned into a prison and prisons disproportionately put people away based on things like economic factors and racial divides and like people getting punished in a disproportionate way based on their subject position. There's kind of just these connections that get us really into heavy themes and that I wouldn't have thought of so much if we didn't interview our expert. So I love that she informed us. I love that too. And it made me think also of a different kind of heavy themes and something I really like that the show did, which is, I would say 99% of the time when you see this kind of plot, it's because, and I'm using everything I'm about to say in air quotes, something was built on top of an ancient Indian burial ground or whatever, and yeah. now the spirits are haunting you. And that is something that is more of the 105 territory of this show. That's something that isn't the writers as Eurocentric people. It's not theirs to play with. But this is a part of our history that's a problematic as a nation. We confront our own histories rather than plagiarizing the histories of another culture, which I think is really powerful and makes for a more unique and compelling story anyway. That was really well said, and I appreciate your connection because it's so true. So, really quick, we go back to the warehouse where Artie has whipped up another dingus to possibly pull Claudia down. He's, he's contrived something, but 
we're not sure about it and we only see it for a second before going back to the prison. But there is a really great exchange that I want to point out because we know Claudia takes on more and more responsibilities at the warehouse over time. She says, would it kill you to have put a warning on this? And Artie says, what? Only wear in case of stupid? (laughs) But she does something, okay? Because we know that the displays in front of the artifacts are digital displays, and there were no warnings about Volta's lab coat. It was just like, this is what it does. And so she had no reason to think like, oh, okay, well, I will just use it for this purpose. Cool. At least I know what it does. Maybe it won't hurt me if I know. I think it's Pavlov's bell in a later episode. You see another close-up of one of those digital readouts, and it has negative side effects listed. So at some point, she went through the effort of, like, when she's taking inventory, being like, anyone new who comes in here needs to know what some of these negative side effects are. So I just wanted to appreciate that the art department in the show is so amazing and the set deck team is so amazing because they really help contribute to continuity in a way that makes the world feel really real. And that's all I have to say about that. Thank you. I didn't even notice, but you're right, that the, the information provided changes later. So after that fun exchange between Artie and Claudia, Claudia wants to know, worst case scenario, what happens if she just can't get this lab coat off? And Artie says, well, you know... The warehouse will collapse in on itself and we will all be crushed to death. Yeah. Yes. No big deal, Artie. And then she wants, she's like, okay, sugarcoat it for me. Back at the prison, they're out of cell phone reception and the whole building is starting to experience these hallucinations. We just see person after person struggling in the same way that these previous characters have. And the Farnsworth's not working. Yeah. It's pretty dire. The storm has come in. And Micah and Pete are doing their best to keep it together and put their heads together. And Pete does something so smart! I love him! So Micah is going down the same path she usually goes down, which is what artifact is causing this. And he goes, well, it stopped for 30 years. We had the previous warden for 30 years, and then a lot of stuff was removed. We know nothing was added. So what was taken away that's been here for the last 30 years when the warden was here. And that's so smart and so genius. So then Micah deduces it must be something that belonged to the warden. And just at that time, Pete and Micah each see Pete's dad and Sam, respectively. And they both sort of freeze for a minute and then freak out and then are just like, okay, okay, let's go. And they just leave. But... The warden is also hallucinating at this point. And so when they get there, Micah is about to go into the office and the warden just screams, go, and slams the door in her face. Bad news. And Mm -hmm. they hear further screaming. She is obviously seeing something. And they know, though, that the former warden, Warden Matthews, is going to have the solution in his possessions And they also know that those are stored right near the current warden's office. So even though they can't get to her right now, they're going to keep trying to solve this dilemma. And just for something that happens later, Pete tries to do the heroic, I'm going to break down the door thing. (laughs) He does. Um, Which doesn't work because it's a warden's door and it's probably built to be resistant to such things. 
literally a prison, Pete. And pr- Pete's like, Micah, why didn't you tell me? And it's like, Pete, you are very smart, but like, you should have put that together. He's a he's a Gryffindor, is what he is. Sweet Pete. It's very, he can be very smart, but his primary trait is bravery, and it just he just went with the whole brave thing, and then it was like, oh wait, no, smarts after. Yes. So then. Yeah, they start going through the warden stuff in that closet that was mentioned earlier. But as they're doing that, the electric event, the storm has done some terrible stuff, and the prisoners get out of their cells. All the doors open at once, which means they must be connected to something electric. Whatever happened triggered that, and it might have been avoided, you know, if the guards were in any way functional but they just aren't everyone they are not i mean and it makes sense to me like not everyone necessarily has something they're so guilty about that they'd be running screaming from it but people who end up in a prison by and large would be whether they're inside a cell or guarding the cell like you go into corrections not for no reason a lot of the time you know you have an investment in law and order and a desire to do that kind of work. And I think a lot of that can come from a personal sense of loss or regret. Yes, and so there are more people falling. There's just general chaos. It all looks really bad with the prisoners getting out. And then we go to commercial, so that's that. Right before commercial though, while everyone else is freaking out, John and his followers very calmly walk out of their cells. Oh, is that... Yes, they they specifically walk out. In a little bit, we're going to see that John Hill also takes a um, nightstick or whatever you call it out of a guard's like belt. So that that is just about to happen. When we get back from commercial, these guys are getting out, and we believe that it's for nefarious purposes. Yes, I mean, and we believe that because everyone there is filled with regret and they're not and we know that the leader of these people who have no regrets is in prison for murder it it definitely gives us a red flag of danger um and you know we're back at the warden hearing voices she has her gun out but pete and micah they're continuing to look through warden matthew's things and that's when Artie calls micah because he's got a lead based on their previous conversations He explains that Pierre and Jacques Curie, the brothers, proved the effects of piezoelectricity and Micah's listening very attentively and Pete says, you know what that is, don't you? (laughs) And I love it because Micah's like, yeah, like she definitely does. And I just want to get into this because um, I am a historian of science but not a scientist, so I pulled out a quote from, hold on, the American Physical Society that explains piezoelectricity and the connection to the brothers Pierre and Jacques Curie. Um, And I'm just going to read it to you and then link you the source in the show notes. So the other thing that I would just personally say before we begin this is that Pierre Curie is soon to be the husband of Marie Curie, who became his scientific partner after he was done working with his brother. So yes, we should recognize her immediately and the fact that she is deservingly as famous, if not more famous, than the man she ultimately married. So microphones, quartz watches, and printers all rely on an unusual phenomenon known as the piezoelectric effect, which is found in various crystals, ceramics, and even bone. 
It was discovered by none other than French physicist Pierre Curie, working with his older brother Jacques, who found that putting pressure on these materials created electricity. And the name piezoelectricity comes from the Greek piezine for squeeze. So you're putting pressure on things. Um, the brothers thought that there would be a direct correlation between the potential generated by temperature changes and the mechanical strain that was giving rise to piezoelectricity. They expected that a piezoelectric effect would arise in materials with certain crystal asymmetries. Armed with the crudest of materials, tinfoil, glue, wire, magnets, and a jeweler's saw, they tested various types of crystals, including quartz, topaz, cane sugar, rochelle salt, and tourmaline. As a result, they found that such materials, when compressed, would indeed result in an electric potential. Eventually, and this ties to our other theme, Pierre even flirted with a paranormal spiritualism as the 19th century drew to a close. He attended seances with the famed medium Eusapia Palladino, approaching those seances as a scientific experiment with detailed observational notes in hopes that such a study would shed light on magnetism. So again, that connection was super, super prevalent even for this renowned scientist. He wrote in a letter to his fiancée, Marie Sklodowska, eventually Curie, I must admit that those spiritual phenomena intensely interest me. I think in them are questions that deal with physics. So that's actually what my friend Cameron Sanzo from episode 103 is basically writing her dissertation on. So this is the piezoelectric effect. This is what's going on. And I love it. I think it's perfect. It's just real enough, but also just science fiction enough. Yeah, it's so interesting and so cool. And Artie's trying to explain what they need to do when they find whatever object they're looking for, and he's cutting out. But we get enough to know later that it's imperative that they put the artifact back in the same place where it was removed from. It's not just the object, it is the placement of that object. Because obviously, the thing is affecting the prison, the object is still likely somewhere in the prison. Yes. And they seem distressed that the Farnsworth is cutting out, but we do know they're smart enough, and we as an audience can even piece together the pieces that things are coming together. Yeah, I mean, but it's always going to be alarming when something happens that's like, okay, it's really important that you exactly, you're like, okay, I really hope I'm putting this together right, because if I'm wrong, it can be dire. Um, He's got to help Claudia, and things are escalating Not only have these slightly medium-sized objects started to cling to her, but a really big truck is coming in the way. And Artie's trying so hard to keep her calm. What I like is that he's taking notes from her. She's like, okay, tell me worst case scenario what's going to happen. And he does. And then it's too much. And she's like, okay, sugarcoat it. So now he's like in the sugarcoating mode. He doesn't want her to know it's a truck. She's like, what is it? And he, she's like, it sounds like a truck. And he's like, it's not a truck. And it's it's so so a truck. truck. And then (laughs) he starts explaining to her what needs to happen, which again, great communication already. I'm so proud of you. Um, (laughs) But there are some things you can't sugarcoat. So he's like, okay, so what we need to do is reduce your electromagnetic field. And you're like, okay, okay. And he goes, 
Um, and we need to do it really gradually because we don't want to destroy your central nervous system. Like, there's no not scary way to say that, but his tone is like, I'm trying so hard to make this as not scary as possible. And Claudia just goes, yeah, no, we don't. We don't want to do that. <laughs> it's really, really nice. Um, yeah, his tone as well as his like quick problem solving in this tense moment, which obviously he's been a warehouse agent for decades. This is why. Um, while this is occurring, they're they're intercut pretty uh, quickly between the two scenes of Artie trying to help Claudia and Pete in with Micah in the uh, closet room looking for the artifact. Pete's looking for it. Micah is trying to calm down the warden through the door. Okay. And... Pete recalls seeing the image of a big quartz cross. And because he's so smart, he's able to put that together and go through the storage stuff, pull out the big quartz cross, which I think is perfect because you can't hide a quartz cross that big. Like, so it's in there. It's easy to to locate. He pulls it out and we're feeling relief. But then the reverend appears. With all his uh, followers. And because of everything the episode has previously set up, and just the way that these, you know, maximum security inmates are standing there in a group, we're pretty afraid that they're going to attack Pete and Micah or that they're coming to do something terrible. And Micah says something like, you know, am I a dead woman? And the uh, reverend actually says, no, I came to help because... The warden always supported my work and, you know, allowed me to do my religious practice. Um, I know that she must be in trouble because of everything going on right now, and I came to help. And it's incredible to me because Micah doesn't have vibes like Pete does. Um, She doesn't have a lot of options in this scenario, but we do know that they're both brave enough to stand and fight. But at the same time, Micah believes him and makes the judgment call to let the group... They very methodically take it off its hinges. Also, when John sees Pete with the cross, he says, what is it they say about those who live by the sword? Which I recognize as the phrase, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But I have never used it. I didn't know what it meant, which makes sense, because I just looked it up. It's apparently from Matthew, which is a... After my book's end. (laughs) It's the first book of the New Testament. Okay, um, but it seems to mean if you are a person who fights for your whole life, then you'll die fighting, I guess. The proverb biblically implies that it's better to resolve issues peacefully than with violence. Oh, okay, so that is what So that's what it means. Okay. Yes, he's saying... If we all just fight to the death, we all lose. But if we resolve this peacefully, that's preferable. Okay. So yes, that's what the Bible, I think, is getting at. Um, But that gets them to take the, the door off the hinges. And I like that you pointed out that they are in a, what sort of, stable mental state because of their religious philosophy of not having regrets. And I had not pieced that together. I watched this episode, you know, three times and and didn't get there. So you're so smart. Thanks. So the warden's not doing so hot and is shooting at some ghosts. 
And as soon as they take the door off its hinges, she shoots uh, John through the chest. Yes, and it's immediate. He gets shot right away. It does not look like a flesh wound. He's been shot. He goes down. And as this occurs, Pete and Micah obviously go into action. Um, Micah goes for the warden, knowing that she has to take the gun away. Chaos kind of breaks loose, and... Pete rushes around to continue this mission with the Quartz Cross, but we're not going to see him fulfill that quite yet because as soon as Micah tackles the warden and hits the ground with her, it shoots her into this flashback sort of moment to that day in Denver. We get a shot outside of the prison and we can see like lightning striking all around it. Like it's pretty scary. And she and Pete both get whammied. Um, Micah is, like, right back in the moment in Denver where Sam died, and Pete is in the wreckage of where his dad died, and Pete's dad is being a real jerk and saying, you should have warned me and, like, blaming him for all these things, and Pete is talking about, (laughs) if you hear snoring in the background, that's my dog. Um, I do. It's very cute. (laughs) He's sleeping real soundly. So anyway, um, Pete's dad is being a jerk and blaming him for stuff. And Pete is responding in a really healthy manner to each of these concerns. So it's like, I feel like it's something that still weighs on him that he'll always carry with him, but it's something that he's processed as much as he needs to and is able to process. And so he says, you know, you should have told me you should have said something he goes I was a kid if I would have told you you would have gone to work anyway it's not on me these things happen and I love you and then I love what he does he uses the moment as an opportunity he does what we would all do for that one person we wish was still in our lives you know we could just hug them one more time and know it's the last time kind of thing and he goes and he just hugs his dad for as long as he needs to until it stops being real and it's so sweet and so beautiful and p is so strong and emotion emotionally and physically strong for being able to just break out of that moment on his own but you know what i think is interesting and the difference because next we're going to go to micah in her flashback is that Pete, as he is making these healthy, psychologically sound choices, um, he, he hears the echoes of the reverend's voice saying, the cruelest prison is the one we build for ourselves. But the thing is, Pete already knows that. And I think that for Pete specifically, it's not that the reverend told him that for the first time and that this is a revelation, I think it's that that just is the best way to verbalize what Pete, as a person who has dealt with his father's death healthily and, like, has a good head on his shoulders about that trauma, he he does have some possible benefit from hearing the Reverend say it, but clearly he has a deep inner personal strength that makes him able to jump out of this moment and then go to help Micah, who is struggling more yeah and just because of the content warning at the beginning and because of the you know issues of survivor's guilt that plague this episode i just want to be explicit about something first which is it's not that we're endorsing the philosophy of don't have any regrets we've already talked in this episode about how we don't 
agree with that. But we do agree with the fact that you shouldn't, to quote the episode, build yourself a prison out of these regrets. Don't live inside them to the degree that it consumes all the other things that you feel and you take on the weight of the world. That's not ever going to be healthy for you and we do fully endorse you learning ways to process guilt. You can carry it with you in a way that doesn't destroy you. Yes, thank you, Jillian. So we go to Micah's flashback of the day in Denver. It's the moment where they're going, I guess, to take down a suspect. Micah, on her comms, tells Sam, wait, it's not time, you know, don't go. Sam rushes in, and he he is found out, and he's shot, and it's very traumatic for Micah. But what we see is that this is what happened, and this is, again, not that Sam isn't a hero or that Sam's death is acceptable, because it's it's not. And when any law enforcement person dies in the line of duty, it's very tragic and a very big sacrifice. But what it does show us is that Micah is not to blame, and in fact, she said it wasn't time, you know. Yeah. He was early, and this is going to come into the conversation with Pete, because now he comes to her side. He is actually rushing in with the cross because he is ready to still solve the crisis. But as soon as Micah, you know, she has her gun out, she's reliving this trauma. As soon as she pulls her gun on him, he puts the cross down. He comes around her so that the gun isn't directed at him. And he begins talking her through this in just such a beautiful way you know, you know the truth, don't be afraid of it. And we saw Sam died because he made a mistake, not Micah. And Pete tells Micah, tell Sam the truth. And that's when we get the line that's very important for Micah's well-being, where the guilt hallucination of Sam says, you were late. And she just says, no, you were early. And verbalizing this truth and then telling him, like, I love you, but I have to move on. That's exactly what Jill was talking about a second ago in that we know it's important to learn from and you can't stop yourself from feeling emotions about horrible tragedies and events. But, you know, you can learn from them. You can love those people. You can take very important things from those events and then move forwards and continue what, you know, Micah does is continues helping people and saving lives and actively working in a really positive way against the very thing that took Sam away from her. So she's moving forward very much in this moment. I made a few notes about this scene too. Um, The first is, I love that Pete picks up a random envelope and says, this is the report, and gives her something visual to look at. Yes. Because he was just in that space. He knows you can sort of see what seems relevant. Um, so I think that was just a really smart thing that he could do to make it tangible. And I just want to give a huge shout-out again to Joanne Kelly's acting. Because, first of all, when she sees Sam, it's always with that drop of blood in that exact same place on his head. 
and you get you get the feeling that she rushed to him and saw something and that's just like the last image that stayed with her and she says to pete sam said i killed him in like this really small heartbroken voice and you just get the sense that this is just huge and she would literally not verbalize that thought to anyone else on earth i mean and we all have those we have those things deep inside of us that we don't really ever want to share and we we might know they're not true we might know but what she needs to move on is to say that out loud and have someone tell her it's not true and she I can't think of a single other person she would ever say that to just Pete and I think that is so important because when she does verbalize that she falls out and Pete catches her like physically catches her and they just hug for a minute and it's one thing to tell someone you're there for them. It's another to be there for them. And that's what Pete does in every sense of the word. Physically, emotionally, he's there. And when he says you can talk to me, he means it. And he means it about whatever it is you need to talk about. And that's just the most beautiful friendship I can imagine. Yeah. And then the fun thing about this very platonic friendship is there is also an element because at the end of her hallucination she says I love you Sam and then she kind of comes to in the arms of Pete not Sam not a a romantic interest and they do this kind of funny thing like oh okay okay we got to get back to it first of all obviously because there is a crisis that they immediately need to address but also because they're like we're best friends. This is awkward. We got to, you know, we love each other and we're here for each other in this way, but we've, we've got to get back to it. So it's perfect. It's so perfect because it's, I mean, they're so close. They can talk about anything. Micah can pluck out his freaking ear hair. It's like, okay. (laughs) And so it's warehouse agent time. They're like, okay, Artie said we have to put the cross in the exact right place. What are we going to do? And Micah's like the photo, the photo. And she just, points out the spot with her amazing, you know, A-plus observations, photographic memory, and they rush to put it up. And I imagine that the nail was still in place from where it used to hang. We see the nail. It fuses, like, to the spot. And, yeah, partially her amazing brain, but partially... We talked in the beginning about the set deck team and how, like, where things have been removed on the walls and, like, leaving marks. There's, like, a slight cross-shaped, like, white spot on the wall. I do agree, except I just want to give her a little bit of more credit because it's it's storm time, the lights are out, things are flashing. Um, And then zippity-zap. It seems like we've done the right thing, but we cut back to the warehouse before we find out. Yes. So Artie is still in a flurry to help Claudia. Yes, and and she shouts, hurry, Artie, as he's, like, looking around for things. And he goes, oh, good idea. Just like, (laughs) I was thinking of being real slow, um, which is so funny. And Claudia watches him grab a crossbow and an armload of other stuff string yeah that's exactly what you want when your life is at risk to have someone grab a crossbow you're like this and someone who needs glasses who does not have glasses carrying a crossbow <laughs> i'm just saying it's a lot of maybe stuff. he's farsighted maybe he can only see far away i mean god let's hope <laughs> <laughs> i certainly hope so <laughs> so 
Artie is still pretending there's no truck, um, but he runs to the truck and rips off the antenna as if he has an idea, and he wraps a rope around it and puts it into the crossbow. He takes aim at Claudia, who just goes, Artie, please be good at this. But then, you know, the the next element is that we get the idea that Artie is shooting... I mean, not an arrow, right, but a truck antenna towards Claudia. And from a crossbow, if you don't know bows and arrows, it's going fast. Uh, He holds it up first, and it is an antenna, and he goes, Old girl, come and get it. That's what he says. I couldn't hear it. This reminds me of, like, Doctor Who when, you know, the Doctor speaks to the TARDIS or, you know, someone speaks to this old, ancient, powerful, science fictional entity that is not really an entity but is an entity he's talking to the warehouse yeah we saw that the warehouse has its own energy and that it's reacting to these various forces and so sort of like the you know key and the lightning uh kite experiment the the warehouse listens to Artie, shoots lightning at the antenna and then this enables Artie to get the the charge that he needs to shoot up the electrified crossbow and put everything into place where he wants it. Yes, and he's also, at at this moment, standing on a rug that he just unrolled, like, rubbing his feet against it to build up static electricity. Oh, I missed that! That's incredible! I remember, I just noticed because I was like, is he gonna fly up to her? Is this a flying carpet? And then it was not a flying carpet. Like... (laughs) Yeah, and he's also put other things in place, including those inflatable crashy thingies. He's got one of those. That's exactly what I called it. I have no idea what it's called. I just called it an inflatable crashy thingy. You know the thing. Yeah, and so Day is saved, Claudia is safe, and the first thing she does is turn to him and go, Artemis Maximus, which is the best nickname. And this is the thing, is that it was when he gave her that worst-case scenario, like, kind of dire. But also, you can see that as soon as she lands on that that cushion, she's like, okay, that was definitely awesome. She's amazed by Artie's ability to shoot this crossbow and come up with this plan and, like, like all of these cool objects and artifacts that he, he whipped out to make, you know, this better... They seem to have a really good sense of humor about it. She's like, this is so awesome. And he's like, yeah, it was pretty awesome. He's, like, debating whether or not he needs to yell at her. And, like, she def- he definitely doesn't need to yell at her. Um, he will assert discipline later. But right now he's just going to agree, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. I-, I was awesome. I'm going to acknowledge that. But he's like, no, but you do need to take that jacket off, like, now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, the coat is dangerous. Um... So back at the prison, something sad is happening. Yes, the warden snaps out of her state and goes, what happened? And I love that they didn't tell her. I love that they didn't tell her it was her fault because that would do nobody any good. It would just add to the list of regrets. But what happened is she shot this prisoner through the chest. But before, before she realizes anyone was shot, Micah runs to John. And you just hear Pete in the background go, I hope you like crosses. (laughs) That is really funny because she doesn't know what happened and they are going to have to tell her in some secret service way, you have to hang this cross here and never move it, which is like a weird order to get from the federal government. Yeah. (laughs) 
But Micah, there's something really interesting, goes to the reverend and uh, she goes to like look at his wound and she pulls a Bible out of his breast pocket, which is interesting because we all probably know, and there are true stories of this, but a lot of just also general sort of urban myth stories about soldiers or people who get shot and their lives are spared because they carry a Bible or another holy text and it absorbs the bullet. And so at first the reverend says, it's all right. And she's holding the Bible and you think maybe he survived. Maybe the Bible absorbed the, the bullet, but the Bible has got blood on it. And Pete says he's losing a lot of blood. You know, this, this man has been shot. He, he did get mortally wounded. And the Reverend continues his sentence by saying he's chosen me for sacrifice. And this is really hard for me to deal with because I don't know, like, how our discussion has come across to listeners, but we absolutely believe in freedom of religion. And this man seems a little unusual and not legible to us, not maybe all mentally well to us, but he has found some peace in his religion. And there was a positive outcome of his followers helping people. So it's a really just difficult philosophical question we're faced with here where, you know, he did risk his life in this moment to protect the warden. And without the help of the Reverend and his buddies, Pete and Michael wouldn't have gotten into the office and saved the day. So I don't know, like I don't have any definitive reading except to say that it complicates our understanding of this character. And it gives us a little more, um, definitely more sympathy, but definitely more understanding and and wanting to validate his personal beliefs. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe personally in just absolving yourself of any guilt, which we've talked about in this episode, but, like, that doesn't mean that I don't value the idea of finding peace in a way that is meaningful to you. And I'd, I'd say my personal response to this is very much similar to Micah's response to the whole situation but I understand people who respond like Pete so Micah's response is this is terrible you might not be the best person but you don't deserve to die because nobody deserves to die sort of thing and so she rushes to him and she gets emotional because I mean she's a person who is trained to save lives and there's a person dying in front of her and she can't save him. There's just no way. And it's heartbreaking because it's the what if game. And for anyone listening, please don't play the what if game. It's never, ever going to be good for you. Just deal with the circumstances in front of you. We love you. Please stay healthy and do what you need to do to feel healthy. So sad music plays and we go back to the warehouse where you can clearly see in cursive, Claudia writing, I will not disobey Artie, just over and over and over, and it's hilarious. Like, making her write lines like Bart on every opening scene of The Simpsons. Like, it oh is my gosh. amazing. She says, oh my god, how many more times do I have to do this? And he's like, if you still have to ask the question, then it will be happening again. He doesn't say that. What he does is well, you know what? Like, he fakes her out a little. Like, oh, maybe, okay, you're done. He's like, no. And he just erases the board and is like, 
yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna write it again. She's like, oh no. And like, she is a grown woman. Like, she doesn't have to listen to him, but she has accepted this is my penance. I will do what he says because I have broken the rules and this is what happens. And they talk a bit more because Artie is still playing piano. What he's saying is sad, but I giggled because He's playing the piano and we get like sort of the first shot of him wearing his glasses again and one lens is normal and the other is like at a right angle like not even in front of his eye anymore which is really funny but as Claudia continues writing she says how long have you been working on that and he goes since I lost my father and she gets real serious because you know she's lost both of her parents she knows that struggle and he goes oh no he's not dead he's just lost I'm hoping that when I finish this we can find each other again which is sad it does come back in an interesting way later though it's not it's not a dropped plot line um and but yeah it was a sweet moment and so then we're back at the B&B in Micah's room and she's alone sitting by a fire staring at the report which remains unopened and he says I'm taking the girls for a night on a town which in this part of South Dakota means ice cream and can I just say before we move past this beautifully funny line that when he says the girls for ice cream I'm like oh my gosh Pete is taking like Lena and Claudia out for ice cream which is so brotherly and cute and like I can just picture like he gets in like, you know, the the Secret Service SUV and drives the girls out to ice cream. He asked if Micah wants to come and she's like, mm, I'm kind of beat. And more just great interactions between them. He goes, do you want something? And she very coyly says, you know, I don't eat sugar. And he goes, right, got it. And he lists off like this really like sugary like recipe. Butter pecan with chocolate sprinkles. He's bringing it back. Whether she wants it or not, he's not going to be like, eat this right now. He's going to bring it back, put it in the freezer, and say, hey, I did bring you back something. It's in the freezer if you want it. And then she's going to smile and eat it, and it's going to be fine. And, like, that's what's going to happen because we know these characters so well now. And he just says, remember, if you want to talk. And Micah doesn't say I'm good. She doesn't say no. She says, tomorrow. They've all been through a lot today. It's been a it's been a big long thing. She needs to process on her own. And she goes, "How about tomorrow?" And he goes, "Okay, I'll have uh, my people call your people." And she goes, "Okay, I'll do that." He turns to go, and Micah she looks at the folder or envelope, and picks it up and she starts to walk out of the room with it. And then she just goes, "No." She doesn't say no, but her posture is no, and she tosses it into the fire and she just lets go. It's incredible because that's how clear it is what what Pete helped her realize and what she knows in her heart she is not at fault for anything that happens she is a hero Sam is a hero and she is so confident with a small amount of thanks to Pete for helping her realize that I mean she she claims that on her own in this moment but all of the events have helped her just believe it so wholeheartedly that she never has to open the envelope. She just knows. And and the other thing about it, though, that I think is really important is I think she might have reached that point a million times in the times that she's been thinking about it in the months since it happened. But Pete helped her reach it from a work standpoint, too. Honestly, if something really terrible had happened, if the report had found that she was at fault, she would have been removed from her job. She would have gotten, like, 
called into some office and told this is what your formal punishment is or this is how this will affect your career. And that doesn't happen. She doesn't need to read over every line of the report and obsess over what's happening to, you know, come to terms with it. So she, Pete, Pete helps her really hold on to the stuff that she has struggled with in the past and move forward on a professional level too. So that is all we have for today, but there is a special announcement that we want to make sure you hear. We will be on hiatus for the next two weeks, that's April 9th and April 16th, because of a little thing called Klexicon. So I will be there, it will be very busy repping the podcast and seeing all of my favorite people. So just look forward to episode 110 on April 23rd, and thank you so much for understanding. See you next time, agents.